Financial masterminds double down on bail-in and definition of insanity, plotting regime change against a nuclear power. Coming up on today's show. Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 1st of April 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party Research Director Robbie Barwick. Welcome. Thanks, Elisa. It's April Fool's Day. Can I take you seriously? Yes. <laughs> what we're saying, what we're going through today is actually deadly serious, as you'll find out if you stay tuned the whole way through. <laughs> um, we're going to be discussing the latest developments in bail-in, which is the bank's plans to steal your money to save themselves. And then we'll talk a bit about the um, one of the real and larger issues behind uh, this current military action uh, in the Ukraine coming from the Western agenda, that side of it. Don't forget to like the show, hit the like button if you enjoy it and subscribe. You can hit the notification bell to be informed of upcoming and new shows like one we're about to mention, um, an extra thing, and uh, share it as widely as you can. Yeah, Lisa, two things I want to mention before we start. Um, on YouTube, on our channel, we've, yesterday we put up an interview I did last week with former Australian Ambassador John Lander. So John's a retired um, he was the ambassador to Iran in the, in the late 80s. He was the deputy ambassador to Ch uh, China in the mid-70s when Australia established its relationship with China. Um, uh, he's got a lot of experience. He's very sharp. Diplomacy is an art and a profession, and he's a, he was a definitely a professional at it. And he has insights into diplomacy and international law that people need to listen to his perspective on things like the war in Ukraine and what it means for us in Australia, because we're actually, in, um, as he puts it, part of a, a very similar strategy to be used as a proxy in a US war against China, just in the same way Ukraine is being used as a proxy in the US war against Russia. Mm -hmm. And it's a stark warning, and, and um, he actually explains why our politicians are insane enough to go along with this. Please watch that and get it around as widely as possible. Um, people like John, there's more people of his generation coming out and giving these warnings because, in their view, the, the direction we've taken the last few mm. years is, is the definition of insanity. Uh, and just second quickly, last week on our show we announced we're going to do a week of calls into the Parliament to get uh, justice and compensation for the Sterling First victims. Those calls have gone really, really well. I can announce that on Monday the um, Labor Party's spokesman for uh, financial services, the Shadow Minister for Financial Services, Stephen Jones, will be going to Mandurah in Western Australia to meet with the Sterling First victims. And he'll be accompanied by Labor's candidate for that seat in the upcoming election. Now, there's no reason to do that unless you have an announcement to make to those victims and we'll see what comes out of it. On the other hand, uh, if Labor thinks they can string these victims along and not actually commit to something, because Labor doesn't like committing to things before an election actually, uh, then what good are they? And they will incur the wrath of the victims and the rest of Australia because we want Labor to show us concretely that they are serious about cleaning up the financial corruption in this country, which is what the Citizens Party talked about 
our, me and other candidates like Denise Bradley talked about on our live stream last night, mm. which people, if you haven't seen it, please watch that as well. This is an example, a chance for Labor to show that. So we've played a role in this. What's this space? And let's see come, what comes out of that meeting on Monday. Yes, and on our first topic, Labor has a chance to make the, give themselves a different policy on the political spectrum as well. And that topic is financial masterminds double down on bail-in. So we're going to get to the discussion about some of the latest developments on bail-in. We want to mention a couple of things first, uh, including the latest Morrison-Frydenberg budget. Um, now, of course, this is happening amidst incredible crushing cost of living increases from petrol to food, housing. Um, I mean, on the energy front, we've got forecasts coming of gas shortfalls by next winter and literally rationing of gas, which, you know, it might be one thing for that to be happening in Europe at the moment, but we're in Australia. We are the second, sometimes first biggest gas exporter in the world. Mm -hmm. When our politicians are telling us to expect gas shortages, they are part of a plot to steal from us. Mm. Now, this is, of course, the backdrop of this is the ongoing economic crisis. We've had pandemic, we've got war. We've seen, of course, the shortfalls in our domestic economy, um, which needs to be... That, that's where the real security lays in terms of things like manufacturing, components. What about medicines that we're 90-something percent, percent dependent upon from overseas? In a war, that all changes. Now, in the budget... Frydenberg announced a defence spending increase of $2.8 exceeding 2% of GDP, and the biggest increase in spending to the Australian Signals Directorate in its existence over the next 10 years. Of course, we have support for Ukraine now over $156 million, so this is all for war, and the budget doesn't, of course, include any dollar figure for what we're supposed to be spending on building new submarines as part of our AUKUS alliance. Um, the a AFR actually said that the budget papers explicitly refer to escalating strategic competition and a, quote, increasingly assertive China to justify this defence build-up when we need to be actually building up our economy. So Lockheed Martin, Thales, Northrop Grumman, their cash registers are going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. They've, and this is why they fund, they sponsor ASPE, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, which does nothing but whip up wars, right, and 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 brainwash our politicians to march down this path and put us in the, put us in this position. Yet Australians are suffering and being left out. You mm. know, go talk to the people um, in the flooded areas who are always being told, "Oh, there's not enough." Mm. Now we're going to talk a bit about how um, you can't. There's ways that we can improve the budget uh, in terms of getting a real functioning economy that will generate more money that flows through the budget yeah. into things like healthcare and other basic um, public services. But on the other hand, we're going to talk about the importance of public banking, postal banking, national banking uh, outside of the budget to fund that development. But before we get to it, I want to get your comment on uh, after the budget. Conchetta Fieravanti, Wells Government Senator, got up and had a few comments to say about her boss, Scott Morrison. Lisa, for a long time we've had this um, saying when it comes to the Liberal Party especially and, and their fetish with balancing the budget. Unbalanced minds cannot balance budgets. And this government is the definition of unbalanced minds. And then when you think about what we're going to talk about in terms of bail-in, that path that we've taken in an economy, the people who've cooked up this bail-in system are totally corrupt. Well, this government, Scott Morrison and Josh Frydenberg, but Morrison was the treasurer at the time, gave us bail-in, mm -hmm. right? So it reflects a certain mindset. And then when we talk about national banking as a solution, 
it's people like Morrison that are ideologically opposed to having any actual solution that takes away the power of the private banking cartel. And that bespeaks a certain character, right? And what happens is um, when you have a party, which is a nest of vipers, and they're in power, they have a way through the media, etc., to to often and sometimes mostly disguise how much they actually hate each other. Mm. But when, they, <laughs> when they're facing down the barrel of defeat, they can't disguise that anymore because they all, all they are is a nest of vipers. And Conchetta, I'm no fan This of, was certainly the case with Senator, her. Senator Conchetta, I'm no, you know, um, she's as wacky as the rest of them. She, and, and by the way, don't give her much credit, she's saying this on her way out, mm. right? But what she's saying is dead true. So enjoy... Because she's just the latest to confirm exactly the character that we have as the Prime Minister of Australia and why he must go. Yes. There is a very appropriate saying here, the fish stinks from the head. Morrison and Hawke have ruined the Liberal Party in New South Wales by trampling its constitution. Indeed, I understand at a federal executive meeting, Morrison was asked whether he was running a protection racket in New South Wales. In recent months, I have kept members of the division updated. I have received hundreds, if not thousands, of emails outlining their disgust. They have lost faith in the party. They want to leave. They don't like Morrison and they don't trust him. They continue to despair at our prospects at the next federal election, and they blame Morrison for this. Our members do not want to help in the upcoming election. By now, you might be getting the picture that Morrison is not interested in the rules-based order. It is his way or the highway, an autocrat, a bully who has no moral compass. In my public life, I have met ruthless people. Morrison tops the list followed closely by Hawke. Morrison is not fit to be Prime Minister, and Hawke certainly is not fit to be a minister. Senator Wish-Wilson. Holy smokes. Uh, acting Deputy President, I'm happy to offer another five minutes to Senator for Vanty Wells if she'd like to continue. Tell me about the... Okay, so we agree he must go. I, I absolutely agree. <laughs> Good on you for saying it, Conchetta. Why did you take so long? Right, but of course, yeah, the shenanigans have um, forced her out. That's the character of who's in our government mm. at the moment. And by the way, at least one last comment before we move on. We know this about Scott Morrison. If I'm talking to this, the viewer about domestic politics, most of them, 99% are going to agree with us. Yeah, he's a creep. He doesn't stop being a creep when he, gives a, when he gives a speech on foreign policy and pretends he cares about Ukraine. He's the same creep. He doesn't care about Ukraine. Joe Biden's not a great guy for defending Ukraine. Scott Morrison's not a great guy for defending Ukraine. They have an agenda, right? And unfortunately, most people are blind. Some people all over, you can see it all over Twitter, people who despise Scott Morrison cheering on for defending Ukraine. No, open your eyes. These people do not deserve any support for that as well because what they're doing is just as bad on that front and you've got to look at the bigger picture. And we could equally, equally go on about the Labor Party as well. Both the major parties are you know, in an advanced stage of decline but if they want to revive themselves at any point, we've got the perfect policy for them. They can grab it and run with it and it would completely change people's perceptions of them and that is national banking which means the state 
being put in control of banking. There's various ways you can do it. We've got various proposals and legislation on the table, including an Australia Post Bank. So I wanted to mention a few breakthroughs on the postal banking front globally because across the world, countries are looking at this as the the way to move forward, to get out of the clutches of the private bankers and to get the funds into um, the, at the federal level, but also as we're seeing across the flood-stricken and you know, fire-prone yep. areas into the local and, and state levels, which is critically needed. So uh, there's been a couple of breakthroughs in the US. On the 3rd of March, the Philadelphia City Council in Pennsylvania passed 15 votes to one uh, the Philadelphia Public Financial Authority, which is a municipal body designed to host a public bank. And if this goes ahead, it will be uh, based on the model of the Bank of North Dakota. It just has to be um, passed by the mayor and verified and so forth. But it will, if they set this up, be the first city in America to charter a public mm. bank, an actual city as opposed to a whole state. And people should look up the Bank of North Dakota because it's the only public bank in the United States and it's... It's why the state of North Dakota is the only state that didn't go, was, wasn't brought to its knees by the global financial crisis. Mm. And I urge you to do a search, actually, just uh, put in public banking uh, in America or something like that, and because the number of websites and organisations and groups that are committed to fighting for public banking is actually unbelievable. It's just, we can put a few up, but it's limitless. There's 16 bills in eight states at the moment. Um, there's a bill that just passed the US House of Representatives and the Senate's awaiting the President's signature to overturn a 2006 prohibition that prevents the US Post Office from engaging in delivery of non-postal services, which means it could now provide banking services and that's what's being pushed. Uh, in other parts of the world, you see moves, for instance, in India to incorporate post offices under the banking framework, work in a more of a legal capacity to increase the interoperability between the local post office and your bank and increase accessibility for locals. In South Africa, there's a big legislative push now to turn the postal bank into a state bank. We'll have more to say about that soon. Uh, and in Britain last month, they, um, or in February, I should say, they renewed the equivalent of their bank at post um, arrangement as we have here where the banks give money each year to fund um, the postal services to provide banking uh, and that was within they increased the amount of money that's being paid an extra 200 million pounds per year is what the post offices were demanding uh, because of the you know the absolute desert of actual banks mm. like we've got in Australia uh, two comments that, that for the viewer that make it specific about how this policy, especially our postal bank policy, will influence the cost of living, right? One is our policy as we envisage it is um, if you look at the map of where all the post offices are around Australia, it's the best dist distributed retail footprint of any organisation in the country, right? And so you will always be able to go and bank at your post office. And the money you put in that post office is guaranteed to you um, and then the post office can lend that out and they, and, and they would be... In, it would be um, biased towards lending out into the local communities from which it's receiving the money. Whereas at the moment, when the banks are shutting down their branches all around the country, um, you know, the poor people in regional Australia are chasing their, 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 their local bank to the next town, the next town, the next town to see if they can find one, a branch that's open. They put their money in there, but when someone in the same town goes to borrow that money, they'll often be turned down because it's, the banks are only interested in one thing, mm. and that's lending into Sydney and Melbourne real estate. Mm. Right, and so you you put your money in the bank, but the loans go into Sydney and Melbourne real estate, and they don't get come back into your area. So our postal bank will make sure that that happens. 
but there will, there will be a surplus of deposits because it will attract a lot of deposits. And the surplus deposits can be invested in a national bank, mm. a national development bank, to build infrastructure mm. in Australia. And if the government actually did that, if they used the National Development Bank to build infrastructure, they could take all the infrastructure expenditure out of the budget that they have there now, right? And you would free up like a third of the budget or something that is now spent where your annual tax revenue goes for infrastructure. You can free that up mm. and, and, and use the National Bank to fund the infrastructure. And then the government, by freeing up that money, can spend more money on the services that we need and rely on, mm. which at the moment... They, they outsource, so they try and outsource as much as possible to private providers who do it for maximum profit. That shouldn't be the case. Go back to providing public services as services and then our costs come down. Mm. And the infrastructure itself that you build, that makes the economy more efficient. That makes transportation quicker and more efficient. That brings down costs. That's how you have a program to reduce the cost of living. Mm. right? And, and um, it's not rocket science. Well, it's financial genius. <laughs> well, since you've raised that, I want to show this video clip. It's just a minute and a half because it actually explains that principle of keeping the money in the community. And it's kind of very, very simple, actually. Yeah. And they don't go into what you said about the excess uh, capacity being able to be siphoned into national development and larger projects like the Japan Post model showed in a brilliant way. But that, And they called it the second budget yeah. for Japan. Um, but that's exactly what we need to be doing, so I'll just roll that clip. In this city, in anywhere USA, the residents of this city have decided they want a park. The city council agrees the park is a great idea. But how will they pay for it? The city needs to borrow money. But borrowing money means the city has to pay a lot more money in interest and fees that could double the cost of the park. And that money leaves the city. It goes to Wall Street investors who really don't care about the park or the city at all. This is a bad deal for the city and its residents. There's a much better option. An option that's been proven around the world. A public bank. A public bank is a bank owned by the residents of a city, state, region, or territory. Private Wall Street banks just want to make profits for their shareholders. But public banks have a mission to serve the public good. They have to reflect the values and needs of the community. And that makes all the difference. Politicians don't run a public bank. Their job is to just set it up by listening to what the people need and want. Public banks are run by skilled local bankers who know their neighbors. Residents are on the supervising board to keep tabs on what the bank's doing. Public banks can save communities lots of money. First, they cut out expensive Wall Street fees, which can be hundreds of millions of dollars a year in a big city. Second, they can lower interest rates on the city's loans, which means there's more money to spend on other projects. Third, their profits go back to the city, not to Wall Street, so a public bank can make money for the city. All this means the people of the city have a lot more money to fund all the things they need. And yeah, that's excellent. It's, it's very basic. It, it is. And, but just to make the point that, look, if you don't take that approach, whatever way you want to do it, I mean, you can, there's a million ways you can do it. But if you don't agree to go in that direction to solve the problems, then you're faced with a bankrupt, collapsing financial order. So how do you prop it up? Yes. Bail in. And that's what we want to move on to now. And it's, look, this has come back 
This is right up on the front burner again now. Of course, we have fought against this for several years. Um, and it was um, 2015, if I've got that date, no, 2018, that our legislation, that the Australian legislation passed. The St. Valentine's Day Massacre of Australian Bank Deposits, um, 2018. Went through the Australian Parliament that gave us bail-in with a loophole that you could drive a truck through to steal deposits. And you can go to our other shows on this page on our website, uh, YouTube page for more background on that if you don't know, um, or call us for more info. But just to give you, bring you up to speed of some of the recent months developments on this, uh, on the 10th of January, the International Monetary Fund put out a blog post where they told financially troubled nations for countries where corporate debt and bad loans were high, even before the pandemic, some weaker banks and non-bank lenders may face solvency concerns if financing becomes difficult. Resolution regimes should be readied. Now, resolution regime is the name that covers bail-in and a host of similar policies, which are all dedicated to uh, ripping off whoever they have to, to keep the banks functioning rather than letting them collapse or even putting them through bankruptcy proceedings. The term resolution refers to resolving a banking collapse. Mm. And so that's what the IMF is putting us on notice. I mean, they've constantly hammer countries, including Australia, to make sure they've got their resolution regimes ready, as we've continually reported. Also in January, um, the Lebanese government issued a draft financial rescue plan. Of course, they've been in trouble for a long time. You can read you know, some of the stuff we put out on that as well. But this rescue plan, for the first time, included bail-in. And of course, they're trying to seek an IMF bailout here. So they're doing what the IMF wants them to do. But this would mean that as much as 75% of deposits could be wiped out if this uh, plan goes ahead. And you already have the case that savers who have their money in um, accounts denominated in US dollars, it's all frozen already because the country's trying to stop money flowing out of the country. We also had the case in New Zealand last year that the Cabinet in April had announced that they would implement a new statutory bail-in law to enshrine into law what they've already had in effect. But by October 2021, the Cabinet scrapped it altogether because they feared it would impede or the popular opposition to it would impede the rest of their legislative agenda, which has yep. included things like deposit insurance as part of a broader review of monetary policy. And I'll just add, I think you covered it on the show a few weeks ago, that the AAP had put out a fact check on uh, bail-in in Australia on the idea that people's deposits could be stolen. But it was a fact check fail because they checked the wrong facts. Hmm. <laughs> that came out on the 7th of March. But it just shows you that for some attention. reason, yeah, there's a honing in on this factor. Um, now, I want to report on uh, the big development, which is that came out of the United Kingdom recently. Uh, and that is a review of a, a piece of legislation that came into effect in 2019, um, or regulatory um, rules, I should say, that restricts United Kingdom, well, the biggest uh, seven UK banks that have a lot of investments and speculative um, activities going on. It, it, what it does, it, it, it enforces a... Um, arrangement where they've separated the part of the bank that takes deposits from the part of the bank that conducts investment. This is a 
poor man's version of what came into place in the United States in 1933 after the, as the Great Depression was going on after the 29 crash called Glass-Steagall, which we talk about a lot. Um, so this ring fencing was a, uh, was a, a compromise. compromise because there was a big debate underway after the GFC about how do we protect depositors, how do we protect banks, keep them functioning in a crisis. Well, and what had happened, Elise, it's interesting it even happened because no other country did what the UK did. No. Um, and that was ironic to us because the UK has always led the way in deregulation. Um, and in fact, it was in the mid-80s, Nigel Lawson, who's now Lord Lawson, Nigel and Lawson, the TV chef's dad, mm. um, he was Margaret Thatcher's Chancellor of the Exchequer. He was as ideological as anybody. And they unleashed deregulation in London, the city of London. It was called the Big Bang. And that included, they scrapped, they allowed deposit-taking banks to merge with investment banks. And that was in the mid-80s. And the, the Wall Street used that against their government and said, look, they can do it in London. Why can't we do it here? We've got this law, Glass-Steagall, that stops us from doing it. And so eventually they succeeded in scrapping it in 19, the, the American Act in 1999. Lord Lawson did it in 85 in London. And the, the head of Citibank, Sandy Wheel, took credit for doing it in 1999 in the United States. But in 2008, when the system blew up, those two gentlemen, Lord Lawson and Sandy Wheel from Citibank, said, we made a massive error, mm. right? And they came out and said, this should, have, this should never have happened. And they were part of the people who said, yeah, likewise, we should go back to Glass-Steagall. But, of course, the IMF and the G20 and the Bank for International Settlements and the Bank of England and the Financial Stability Board had pushed on with their own response to the crash, which was bail-in, right? But, but in the UK, a debate had erupted that couldn't be stopped. And it led to a fierce parliamentary debate over Glass-Steagall. The City of London rallied to oppose it, and it ended up being a compromise with this system of, okay, instead of forcing you, if you've got deposits, not to have anything to do with an investment bank, you can keep your invest investment banking function, but you have to section off or mm. ring-fence the deposits, right? Yep. And that came into effect... It's now been in place for three years and yeah. we can see what's happened to it. Yeah, because there's a panel that's just conducted a full review of that and they had some interesting findings. Of course, um, they took submissions from the Bank of England and big <coughs> banks and they were all squealing about this. They want to get rid of it because, especially over the last few years, of course, you had uh, a big increase in savings over... Um, the pandemic with various lockdowns, people you know can't go out and spend money, and so all this, these deposits flooding in would normally be the basis for massive increases in speculative yeah. engagement by the banks. But they had to keep it in their ring-fenced entity. They couldn't do that. So all that could be done was it gets loaned out with normal loaning procedures that don't involve speculation. So there was a tripling of ex excess liquidity noted in the UK in September two. 2021 over the pre-COVID levels um, and the report from this panel uh, decried the fact that this resulted in liquidity being deployed in the retail banking markets, i.e. not in the investment markets. Yep. Um, we'll put up a graph that shows, and this is just a snapshot in time, that shows the amount of deposits in the non-ring-fenced non body, the NRF 
B, as opposed to the deposits in the ring-fenced body. So you can see that the deposits have distinctly favoured the ring-fenced entities because people know People wanted safe. to put their money in the areas that were cut off from the speculators. Now, the loan stock, which means loans outgoing to business and productive enterprise or regular people and businesses, the loan stocks of those ring-fenced entities... Uh, has reached the highest point in seven years. This is an extraordinary endorsement of what we said would happen with Glass-Steagall. You, you restore confidence in the banking system. So that's what that, that, that graph shows. People put their money in the, in the separated part or the ring fence part, and because the banks can't speculate it with it, they have to lend out to ordinary people, mm. small businesses, farmers, you know, um, personal loans in the real economy. Right, and this is what could happen in Australia. We have a system now where uh, you don't have any kind of separation for your money, um, you can't have any confidence in it, and the banks use it as they see fit, and it's not good for the country. Now, despite all of that, and the you know the panel had to admit such things, um, they don't recommend. I mean, they, they their conclusion was that ring fencing is worth retaining at present, but. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're saying that um, because ring fencing doesn't protect all critical functions of banking, such as investment banking, and therefore because it, ring fencing doesn't protect that, there's still possibility of material impacts on financial stability and so on and so forth, and they cite arguments about complexities and so forth, things that wouldn't be a problem if you had the full glass steagle, because it's very, very simple and straightforward. So they, what they do recommend um, is that over time... The resolution regime, the bail-in regime, has to replace ring fencing. So you will get rid of ring fencing once uh, bail-in. I mean, and some experts say you need to have a live example and show that it works. And once that happens with bail-in, then we can go full steam ahead, where basically bail-in would be the only form of regulation that exists. Um, so they just to quote the report, they say the regime's benefit of ring fencing will diminish over time, especially as the resolution regime designed to ensure the continuation of all critical functions across both sides of the ring fence in a banking group is embedded. And I just want to make a final comment on this because um, the purpose of um, bail-in was basically to stop people's savings being protected. And they, the Bank of England stated this in their 2017 Purple Book, which was their definitive uh, definitive um, manual on how they're going to run a bail-in and it just says that the bail-in resolution process greatly simplifies resolution and reduces the incentive for host authorities to ring fence local assets for the protection of local depositors and creditors. So they don't want that to happen. That's just, why, wouldn't, why would the Bank of England not want local creditors and depositors protected? I mean, this, right there, you know, this is everything that's wrong with the system. Um, Elisa, I think the, the only other point I wanted to make about it is clearly the review was done to promote the idea of bailing. Yeah. What's interesting is in doing the review of the ring fence, they had to acknowledge, well... Yeah, some the, truth seeped out. These are, these are, <laughs> these are incredible <laughs> benefits here. Yeah. So anyway, we'll move on to our next topic. Um, definition of insanity, plotting regime change against a nuclear power. And look, basically we're going to show you just by citing a couple of um, commentators... And we could talk a lot more about this, and we will in future shows. But What we're going to show is Putin wouldn't be paranoid if they weren't out together. <laughs> Look, there's basically no intention to have this war end 
on the part of the Anglo-Americans. Yeah. Putin is happy to do what he was set in to do and, and withdraw. But you can't envision how the world, the rest of the world, is going to wind back denouncing this guy as the new Hitler. Um, how are they going to wind back their sanctions? I mean, sanctions are notoriously hard to wind back at the best of times, um, you know, because it's a kind of a creeping thing that becomes embedded. Um, and at the same time, you actually have the threat that because of a lot of these sanctions, the entire economic framework could be overthrown and replaced, quite frankly, which we'll talk about more in future shows. Um, the U whole US dollar system is standing to fall here. And of course, you know, they know the Anglo-Americans know this. This is part of why they're in this adventure in the first place, because they're losing control as their system goes down. Military adventures such as this are critical to retaining it. Now, I want to start with um, people probably would have heard that um, President Joe Biden made what some people have called a gaffe and other people have called a scripted comment in his speech on last Saturday a week ago uh, that Putin cannot remain in power, that, you know, basically he's got to go. Uh, and Glenn Greenwald, who, of course, helped expose um, the uh, revelations from Edward Snowden years ago, he made a comment on 28th March where he said the US is by definition waging a proxy war against Russia, using Ukrainians as their instrument with the goal of not ending the war but prolonging it. He quoted a New York Times article from the 19th of March which cited sources saying that the Biden administration seeks to help Ukraine lock Russia in a quagmire without inciting a broader conflict with a nuclear-armed adversary or cutting off potential paths to de-escalation. Uh, and indeed, the article went on, even some American officials assert that as a matter of international law, the provision of weaponry and intelligence to the Ukrainian army has made the United States a co-belligerent. As it has Australia, by the way. We're under that understanding of international law. We're effectively at war as well. Now, um, another commentator I want to cite is Niall Ferguson, and uh, he's... You want to say something about who well, he is? Well, Niall Ferguson is uh, one of the most connected people in the world. He is the historian of choice for mm. the City of London. He's written um, the biographies, the, the definitive biographies of the Warburg family, the Rothschild family. Uh, he, he came to a lot of people's uh, attention... A few years ago, well, probably a decade ago now, I suppose, we're getting old, um, when he did this video series called The Ascent of Money. But he's an incredibly well-connected mm. guy. And when I say Warburg and Rothschild, I'm not saying it in the way that people hear those names spread around the internet. These are, these are significant City of London banks, right, and, and, and New York banks. And he's written definitive histories on some of the others as well. But these are the people, like Sigmund Warburg was the architect of the current, one of the architects of the current dollar system, mm. right? Um, so Niall Ferguson understands these things. Now, now, I'm totally opposed to his the agenda that he represents, but he understands these things. So when he makes these comments yeah. you're about to re read, they're very significant. He has an insight into the thinking of yeah. such people and powers. So he commented on the same New York Times article as Greenwald did. He said, reading this carefully, I conclude that the US intends to keep this war going. And, of course, that is by keeping the weapons flowing and so forth from arm's length. Uh, he said, I have evidence from other sources to corroborate this. The only end game now, a senior administration official was heard to say at a private event early this month, is the end of the Putin regime. Until then, 
all the time Putin stays, Russia will be a pariah state that will never be welcomed back into the community of nations, which is what I meant by winding back sanctions, etc. It ain't going to happen without regime change. He said, I gather that senior British figures are talking in similar terms. There is a belief that the UK's number one option is for the conflict to be extended and thereby bleed Putin. Again and again, he said, I hear such language. It helps explain, among other things, the lack of any diplomatic effort by the US to secure a ceasefire. It also explains the readiness of President Joe Biden to call Putin a war criminal. Now, he goes on to say all of this would be wonderful if it worked and would send a clear message to China as well. Um, but he doesn't think it will work. He said, in my view, and I really would love to be wrong about this, the Biden administration is making a colossal mistake in thinking that it can protract the war in Ukraine, bleed Russia dry, topple Putin and signal to China to keep its hands off Taiwan. What you see here is um, he's actually, because he doesn't think it'll work, in a sense he's blowing the whistle on what I think is probably the greatest evil in the world which is the evil of geopolitics. And geopolitics is where um, politicians and academics think of the world as a great... If you know the game of risk, which is you know like the map of the world and everyone's moving their armies around, etc., or the picture of Churchill leaning over the table in World War II and they're pushing mm. the, the different soldiers around, they, they get off on this stuff. They think it's their right to, to say, where's the balance of power at the moment? What can we do to nudge... We should nudge this here. We should nudge... Nudging that there, that's 50,000 deaths. Nudging this over here, that's 2 million deaths. That, these people are worse than Hitler mm. in terms of the consequence of their action because they're the ones that keep the world in permanent war, right? And you're, you're very right about the, de- the problem here is the demonization because I remember reading the, the Herald Sun newspaper here in Melbourne, Rupert Murdoch's biggest uh, tabloid in Australia, in the year 2000, that was my job in the, in the office then. I read the papers every day. And one of Murdoch's columnists called Vladimir Putin Hitler then in the year 2000. He hadn't done anything, right? And what's happened is the demonisation of Putin has been so intense. Mm. And there's, but it's been for the purpose of a smokescreen. Because while they've been demonising Putin and made him into a caricature, they're the ones who expanded NATO. They're the ones who scrapped the treaties to do with nuclear missiles that have kept the world safe. They, America scrapped them. Russia never scrapped one of them. America scrapped them. Right? And when and it was America and Australia and the United States and the United Kingdom, sorry, we're the ones that went to war. We invaded Iraq. I mean, what, what, what Putin has done in Ukraine to this day is nothing compared to what we did to Iraq. Nothing. There's a million dead Iraqis because of what we did. On a lie. Right? Um, but we, in demonising him, kept pushing and pushing and pushing right up to Russia's borders. We, we, we stationed missiles right within reach of Russia, but in a way where America, in, in our alert this week, Elisa, there's an excellent article in the Washington Insider where one of America's top uh, nuclear experts warns about the imbalance where Russia doesn't have the same technology America does. America knows everywhere a missile goes off mm. in the world. It knows it straight away. In, America, in a nuclear exchange, America has 39 minutes to respond. Russia doesn't have the same technology. It doesn't know if America's um, fired a missile. It has seven minutes to respond. Mm. And because it's not, there's not Russian missiles right up or close to America's border. There's American missiles right up close to Russia's border. 
right? And this is, these are the things that made the world dangerous. And so the, the, the um, uh, but no one paid attention except organisations like ours all along because for the average person who's only just paying attention now because of the war, all they heard was this, uh, this absolute demonisation of, of um, uh, Putin. What's interesting is even though Niall Ferguson is exactly on the same page as all that, he's reflecting an understanding that, hang on, in our arrogance, we cannot ignore the fact that the rest of the world is actually not with us on this. Mm. China's with Russia. Not even India's on its, with us on this. India's with Russia. Nobody in the world outside of white countries is condemning Russia. Mm, there's dozens of countries that refuse to condemn exactly, Russia. Exactly. This is, a, this is something that we've done to ourselves. This is what, listen to John Lander's perspective of it in our mm. show um, that I talked about at the start of the show. Um, these, are, this, these are dangerous times that we are driving the danger, mm -hmm. right? And first thing to do, if you really want to achieve peace, Stop believing the demonization agenda and actually look at the overall lay of the land. Mm. Uh, and yeah, we're trying to do our best to give you the information yeah. you need. So yeah, please do contact us to get a copy of the alert. There's more on that subject. There's more on the bail-in story if you're interested in finding out more. Um, and watch that John Lander video. Absolutely, it's urgent. And get it out, share it as widely as you can, <laughs> as well as this show. We've run out of time for this week. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, Lisa. Thanks for tuning in and join us again next week. Authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.